Last time we talked about the Book of the Covenant in Exodus chapters 20 to 23. And it's my purpose this time to look at the renewal of the covenant, which we find in Exodus chapter 34, and then some additional matters related to the covenant that we find in the book of Exodus. We are going to be looking at some uh, grammatical uh, structures in the book of Exodus, and I have provided um, diagrams of these structures on my blog, which you can find at expoundtheword.com. And the title of the article is uh, Two Chiasms in Exodus About the Sabbath. So you might want to look those up. Uh, Let's look then at the renewal of the covenant, which we find in Exodus chapter 34, verses 10 to 28. Almost immediately after God had given to Israel the book of the covenant in Exodus 20, 21, 22, and 23, Israel broke that covenant with God by worshiping the golden calf. That's recorded for us in Exodus chapter 32. And it was only through the intercession of Moses in the remaining chapters that God did not destroy his people and make a new nation of Moses, but continued his covenant with the people of Israel. And in connection with this new covenant, then, we can look at the beginning of chapter 34. First of all, we find then that God uh, gave to Moses a new copy of the tablets that uh, had contained the uh, uh, Ten Commandments and that Moses had broken when he saw what the people were doing at the foot of the mountain. That's in verses 1 to 4 of Exodus 34. Then in verses 5 to 8, Moses saw a vision of God, and the Lord uh, proclaimed the name of the Lord before him. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And notice then that Moses concludes this part of uh, his encounter with God by saying to him, verse 9, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. So he asks the Lord to go among them, and that is, of course, with the purpose of leading them to the land of Canaan and fulfilling his promise that he would give them the land that he had promised to their fathers. And in verses 10 and following, then, of that chapter, we find the Lord making his covenant again with Israel through Moses. 
Now, what the Lord does at the beginning of this covenant is uh, speak his promise, and he repeats his promise of conquest over the of the land. In verse 11, Behold, I am driving out from before you the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. He says in verse 10 that he will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth nor in any nation. And then in verse 12, he says, Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And he begins to lay out his uh, covenant, his commandments for them. These are again further explanations of the Ten Commandments which were written on the tables of stone and some of the ceremonies of the law. We're not going to review all of the material that's found in those uh, commandments from verses 12 to um, uh, 26 but we do want to note a couple of things about that material. First of all, we want to notice as we go through, as you go, you, you want to notice as you go through this material, that the Lord here in this material repeats uh, material that he had already given to them in the book of the covenant in chapters 20 to 23. There's really nothing new here. The phrasing is somewhat different, but the commandments are essentially the same. For example, he says in uh, verses 10 to 16 of Exodus 34, you are not to commit idolatry, you are not to make covenants with the people of the land, you are not to intermarry with them. And this repeats material that you find in chapter 23, verses 24 to 33. He says in verse 17, you are not to make for yourself molded gods. And that's from chapter 20, verse 23. He uh, repeats for them the feast days, the commandments regarding the observance of the three great feasts. And these uh, commandments are also found in chapter 23, verses 14 to 17. So what he says here in Exodus 34 is not new compared with Exodus chapters 20, 21, 22, and 23, especially chapter 23. Another striking thing, though, in verse in chapter 34, is that the Lord does not repeat everything that you find in chapters 20 to 23. In fact, there's a, a large body of material there in the book of the covenant that pertains to the uh, people of Israel's dealings with one another. That is, has to do with the second table of the law. That material is not found here in Exodus 34. Instead, the material that you found he, find here is that material which in Exodus 20 to 23 has to do with the first table of the law, the worship of God. It was in this area, of course, that Israel had transgressed in worshiping the golden calf. And it is in this area, therefore, that the Lord comes to them and says to them, I'm going to make my covenant with you. I'm going to maintain my covenant with you. But understand this, that that does not mean that you are free to transgress my covenant again, as you have done uh, with the golden calf. Do not take this 
forgiveness of your sin and this uh, maintenance of my covenant, this renewal of my covenant, as an excuse to go back to your idolatry again. My commandments still stand. You must still worship me and me alone. You must still observe those ceremonies which I have given you in the law. And you must still bring your tithes and offerings to my house. We see also in this um, renewal of the covenant then an anticipation of the conquest of the land. We noted that already in verse 11 of the chapter where God says that you're going to be going into the land of Canaan. I'm going to do wonders before all the people there in the land of Canaan. I'm going to give you unexpected and great victories over those powerful nations there. And the point then is that this law which God is giving here in Exodus 34 applies to them not only here as they are at Mount Sinai and not only in the days to come when they will be in the wilderness but is also to be the pattern of their life when they are in the land of Canaan. This is how they are to live with their God, the God who has come to dwell among them in his house. So that's the first thing we want to notice about Exodus, this renewal of the covenant, which you find in Exodus chapter 34. But now I want to go on to two other things in the book of Exodus that pertain to the uh, covenant of God. And the first of those things is that there is, in this book of Exodus, a particular emphasis on the Sabbath day. All of the feast days of Israel were Sabbaths, and they had some other Sabbaths besides that, like the new moon of the seventh month, and the Sabbath year, and the year of Jubilee, and so on. But there's a particular emphasis in the book of Exodus on the Sabbath day. And it's not just because that commandment appears in the Uh, Ten Commandments, as given in Exodus chapter 20, but it appears in other places as well. The first thing we want to notice about that is that the commandment regarding the Sabbath day is found in both the Book of the Covenant and in the Renewal of the Covenant. The Book of the Covenant has the Sabbath day explained further in chapter 23, Verses 10 to 12. Six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. That's all all about the Sabbath year. Verse 12, however, is about the Sabbath day. Six days you shall do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female servant and the stranger may be refreshed. But this commandment regarding the Sabbath is also found in chapter 34, verse 21, in the renewal of the covenant that God did there. Exodus 34, verse 21. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, 
in plowing time and in harvest, you shall rest. So when God renews his covenant with the people of Israel, and when he first gives them the book of the covenant, a further explanation of the Ten Commandments, he includes explanation of the Sabbath day. But that's not yet the most important material that we find in the book of Exodus regarding the Sabbath day. And here you may want to refer to that material I talked to you about at the beginning of this speech. That's included on my uh, blog about the chiasms in Exodus regarding the Sabbath day. There are two of these chiasms that we want to look at. The first of those chiasms is a very large chiasm, really beginning in chapter 24 of Exodus and going all the way to the end of the book. That whole part of the book from Exodus 24, uh, partway through that chapter, to the very end of the book is a very large chiasm. And here's how that chiasm works. In the end of chapter 24, we find Moses going up to Mount Sinai to stand in the presence of the Lord and to receive from him the instructions regarding the tabernacle. So Moses is in the presence of the Lord in the end of chapter 24. At the very end of the book, the last uh, verses of chapter uh, 40, we find that God's presence is now in the tabernacle. Moses had gone up the mountain to be in the presence of the Lord. Now the presence of the Lord has come down from the mountain to dwell in the house, the tabernacle, which Moses and the people of Israel had built for him. So those are at the ends of this chiasm. Moses in the presence of the Lord and the presence of the Lord among his people. The next two parts of that chiasm have to do with the tabernacle itself. So you find in chapter 25 through chapter 31, basically, the um, instructions for building the tabernacle. Chapter 25, verse 1, to chapter 31, verse 11. There God is giving on Mount Sinai the instructions to Moses for building the tabernacle. And at the end of the book, before the presence of the Lord comes to the tabernacle, you find the people of Israel actually carrying out those instructions of the Lord. That's chapter 35, verse 4, to chapter 40, verse 33. So the instructions for the tabernacle from chapter 25 to partway through chapter 31 and then the actual building of the tabernacle from chapter 35, verse 4, to chapter 40, verse 33. And in between those instructions for building the tabernacle and the actual uh, building of the tabernacle, you find the whole incident of the golden calf in chapters 32 to 34, and the renewal of the covenant which we have been talking about. So God has, is giving Moses the instructions for the tabernacle in which he will come to dwell among his people, and his people then are to worship him at his tabernacle. And while God is doing that, his people are transgressing his covenant. 
worshiping the golden calf, having an orgy in front of that calf, and doing abominable things that are totally contrary to their calling to be and to live as the people of God in the world. Then Moses pleads for them. Their sins are forgiven. The tabernacle is nevertheless built. Even though God had talked about casting off his people at that point, Moses has interceded for them and their sin had been forgiven. So the tabernacle was built and God came to dwell among them. But there's one more interesting feature about this chiasm. And that is that immediately after the instructions for the building of the tabernacle, God repeats the commandment to observe the Sabbath day. And it's the only one of his commandments that he repeats at that point. You find it in Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 to 17. We won't read the whole of that section right now. We'll come back to it in a few minutes. But notice in verse 13, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep. So after giving the instruction for the tabernacle, God comes to his people through Moses and he says to them, Keep my Sabbaths. Then you have the whole account of the golden calf in chapters 32, 33, and 34 and the forgiveness of their sins, and the renewal of the covenant. And in chapter 35, verses 1 to 3, before the people begin to build the tabernacle, the Lord again speaks of the Sabbath day. Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said to them, These are the words which the Lord has commanded you to do. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day shall be a holy day for you, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. Now that's very striking. It's very striking, first of all, because clearly God is relating that whole matter about keeping the Sabbath to the tabernacle. The whole point of this Sabbath day is that the people may dwell with their God, may come into the presence of their God, and that presence of God is in the tabernacle. So the Sabbath day relates particularly to the tabernacle. In fact, we find out later on in the scriptures, in Psalm 132, for example, that God calls this tabernacle the place of his rest, his resting place. So he has a resting place among the people of Israel, a Sabbath place, if you will. And he brings his people into his resting place. He gives to them the Sabbath day so that they may come into his resting place. There's a very close connection between the Sabbath day and the tabernacle. The, the tabernacle is, in fact, a, an Old Testament typical fulfillment of the Sabbath day, of the promise of rest which the Sabbath day contains. And if we remember then that the tabernacle is a type of the church, the church then becomes God's place of rest in the New Testament. There he dwells, there he finds his rest, and into that church, into that place of rest, 
he brings his people. But this Sabbath day, these commandments regarding the Sabbath day are found also at the beginning and at the end of the account regarding the golden calf. And the whole point of that golden calf incident, of course, is that the people had not only transgressed the first commandment and the second commandments of God's law, but they had transgressed also the fourth commandment. They were refusing to enter into his rest by their unbelief, as Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 talk about. And God then, through the intercession of Moses, forgives their sin and nevertheless brings them into his rest. And this is what he does with us every time we sin. We sin against him. We depart from his rest. We refuse to enter into his rest, which is primarily a ceasing from sin, as Hebrews 4 teaches us. And he then forgives our sin and restores us to the place of his rest. He brings us back into his house to dwell with him and with his people there in that house. So you see that, that in that big chiasm from Exodus chapter 24 all the way to the end of Exodus 40, the Sabbath day plays a very important role. It's not frequently mentioned in that section. Three times is all. But nevertheless, it plays a very important role in it because of the way that the passage is structured. The Sabbath is directly related to the tabernacle and directly related to Israel's sin with the golden calf. So that's the first thing we want to see here about the Sabbath. But then we have to remember also that the tabernacle itself was the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham, I will be your God and the God of your children. God fulfilled that promise to Abraham in a typical fashion when he came to dwell among his people in his house in the tabernacle. So God was there among his people. God had become, in a very significant and a very powerful way, the God of Abraham's descendants. He had established his house among them. He had come to live in that house. That's what he meant when he said to Abraham, I will be your God and the God of your descendants. But of course, that promise is only typically fulfilled. Israel is a type of the church. And the promise extends also into the New Testament and to the New Testament house of God, to believers and their children in the New Testament. And God fulfills that same promise when he comes to dwell among his people in the New Testament temple, in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is his Sabbath. There his Sabbath is fulfilled. There he has a place of rest. There he fulfills the promise he made to Abraham, not only that he would be the God of him and of his direct descendants, but that he would have many descendants also among the Gentiles. The Gentiles are also counted 
as the people of God. And the Gentiles also then come into God's rest through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's another chiasm in the book of Exodus that we also want to look at. And that's found in Exodus chapter 31. This is the commandment regarding the Sabbath day that God gave immediately after he had given the instructions for the building of the tabernacle. And here we find another uh, chiasm regarding the Sabbath day. If you look at the verses there, verses 13 to 17, you find at the outer ends of this chiasm that the Sabbath is a sign. Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And in verse 17, it is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So first, the Lord describes the Sabbath day as a sign. On both, at both the beginning and the end of this commandment regarding the Sabbath. Then you find him commanding his people to keep the Sabbath day. Verse 14, you shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. And in verse 16, therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. So, after he has given them, the, uh, taught them that the Sabbath is to be a sign, he says to them, now you must keep the Sabbath. Then he uh, prescribes a penalty for breaking the Sabbath. And you find that in 14b. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. And in um, verse 15b, whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. So that's the third element in this chiasm. And then in the center of the chiasm, in chapter chapter 31, verse 15, the first part of the verse, he repeats the basic requirement of the Sabbath, Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. So you have a very highly structured passage here again about the Sabbath, which repeats the basic requirement of the Sabbath from the fourth commandment, no work, which prescribes a penalty for breaking the Sabbath, death, which commands the people to keep the Sabbath, because it is holy, and which also describes the Sabbath as a sign. And that's the, that last is what we particularly want to pay attention to for a moment here. The Sabbath is a sign. In fact, I think we may say that the Sabbath was the sign, the sign of God's covenant with Israel. As the rainbow was the sign of God's covenant with Noah, and as circumcision was the sign of God's covenant with Abraham, so the Sabbath day is the sign of God's covenant with Israel. 
And God gives to them the significance of this sign as well in verse 13 of Exodus 31, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. The Sabbath day then is a sign that teaches Israel that he is the Lord who sanctifies them. And here's the whole point of that Sabbath day then. God is holy. His place of rest, his tabernacle and his temple are holy places. The people are unholy as their sin with the golden calf clearly reveals. The people, therefore, cannot come to God. The people may not enter into his rest because of their sin. But the Lord says, so that you may enter my rest, I will sanctify you. The Lord sanctifies his people. And this is the significance then of the Sabbath also in the New Testament. And I believe that if we take away the day of rest, the first day of the week in the New Testament, then we are ripping out the sign of the covenant as surely as if we take the sign of baptism away from the people of God as a sign of his covenant with us and with our children. And as surely as if we refuse to acknowledge the rainbow as a sign of God's promise that he will never again destroy the earth with a flood, so surely if we refuse to observe the Sabbath day, the weekly Sabbath day in the New Testament, we rip this sign away from God's covenant with us, this sign that he is the one who sanctifies us so that we may enter into his spiritual rest. But the objection is often raised, of course, that if the Sabbath day still exists in the New Testament, then how can you explain that the Sabbath day is no longer celebrated on the seventh, but on the first day of the week? Well, there are a couple of things that we need to say about that. First of all, we should note that circumcision also changed. The rainbow stays the same from age to age, Old and New Testament, until our Lord returns again. The rainbow will be the sign of God's covenant. But when the New Testament came, circumcision as a bloody sign could not continue any longer. No blood must be shed any longer in the New Testament for the atonement of sin. God replaced circumcision with baptism, as Colossians 2 verses 11 and 12 make clear. So God changed the sign to a non-bloody sign. But it's still the sign that God washes away our sins in the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just as circumcision was a sign of the circumcision of the heart, so the external washing with water is a sign of the washing of the heart from the filth and corruption of sin. A sign that God sanctifies us through the blood of Jesus Christ, and forgives our sins through his blood. So the sign changes, the external form of the sign changes, but the significance of the sign stays the same. But, then with the Sabbath day, you have the same kind of thing happening. Why is it so significant that the church worship it, worships on the first day of the week now, and not on the seventh day of the week? 
Well, the reason for that is that our Lord Jesus Christ came into our flesh, that he suffered with us in the flesh, that he was tempted in all points as we are, that he died, in fact, under the uh, persecution and unrighteous judgment of earthly judges, and that he died thus for our sins, but also that he rose from the dead and entered into his rest. He had finished his work of salvation. He had accomplished all that the Father sent him to do. And it was time, therefore, for him to rise from the dead, to ascend into heaven, and to sit down to rest at the right hand of God, to enter his Sabbath day. And from that point on, then, to bring his people into that Sabbath with him. That was on the first day of the week that he entered into his rest. That's why the sign has changed. It's no longer fitting to celebrate the Sabbath on the seventh day of the week. The sign has been fulfilled in that regard through the resurrection and entering into rest of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we celebrate the Sabbath on the seventh day of the week, on the first day of the week, rather, as a celebration of the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ has entered into his rest and is bringing us to that eternal and glorious rest of heaven itself. As Israel was at Mount Sinai and receiving from God the commandment to observe the Sabbath days, all the different Sabbath days, including the the feast days and so on. She was anticipating the entry into a better rest yet, her entry into the land of Canaan itself, the land of rest. That land was the land of rest for Israel and typical of the better country which we ourselves seek. We too, every Sabbath day that we worship God, and our Savior, who has entered into rest, anticipate the final and glorious rest of heaven. May God grant that rest soon. And may he bless you with his word.